Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. If you enjoy listening to Corology, then I need your help. Here's why. I create Corology by myself on a shoestring budget, recording and editing every episode in my tiny closet. How's that for irony? That's where you come in. Will you help keep Corology on the air by supporting it financially? By tipping as little as $1 a month, you can help me improve and keep making Corology every week. All you have to do is jump over to MatthiasRoberts.com support to make a pledge and listen away. Hey friends, this is Matthias Roberts and you're listening to Corology, a podcast on belief and being. This is episode 28. I, I tell people frequently that I have a very, very specific transgender gay agenda. Um, and it is to love the Lord my God with all my heart, mind, and soul, and love my neighbor as myself. Laura Beth Taylor is a blogger, author, and speaker. She grew up in a conservative Christian military home and currently works as a life skills coach for a behavioral health clinic in Indiana. Her book, Shattering Masks, tells about her journey as a trans woman of faith, and one of her main goals is to help people live as the strongest and most content versions of themselves. I've known Laura Beth for a couple years. Uh, We see each other at the same conferences several times a year, uh, and I realized I've never really heard much of Laura Beth's story before. Uh, so part of this episode is Laura Beth's story, uh, and then we get into a really interesting conversation around authenticity and filters, and how living authentically doesn't necessarily mean living without a filter, uh, which I know those lines can get kind of blurry sometimes. Uh, so I, I like learned so much from this conversation, uh, and I'm so excited to have her on the podcast today. Uh, I know I say that every week, uh, <laughs> uh, but it, it seriously, it's just, it's just so good. Uh, so let's go ahead and dive in. Laura Beth, hi. Hello. How are you doing today? I am doing well, having a gorgeous day here in the Midwest. Oh, that's awesome. It is once again raining here in Seattle, but I feel like that's... <laughs> that's. Always... I think it's supposed to be raining in yeah, Seattle. Yeah, I think I that's mean, just, just a given. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. We should just announce when it's not raining in Seattle. Probably, be, so, yeah. <laughs> that might be the better way to do it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so to start, this is a question I start every episode with. Uh, but how do you identify, and then how would you say that your faith has helped form that identity? Um, well, recently I've started identifying myself as uh, Laura Beth of the House Bucklider, first of my name, builder of. Bridges, breaker of boxes, and mother of unicorns. <laughs> that's um, amazing. <laughs> but that's that's a little complicated. Yeah. Maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, I think probably more what you're looking for. <laughs> um, I identify um, as a intersex trans lesbian woman. Um, and actually, now that I just said that, the first one is probably less complicated than, um, yeah, than the actual identity in some ways. But um, 
and sometimes I throw mystic Christian in there just for the fun of it to um, shake things up a little bit. But um, but yeah, it's been and how has my faith impacted that? Um, you know, my faith kept me in a box for forty plus years. Um, <clears throat> I was I was born in 1972, and I didn't come out until 2014. So I was 42, and at that point had been in therapy for roughly 12 years, um, having been eventually diagnosed with um, what was then gender identity disorder, what we would now call gender dysphoria. Um, and it wasn't it wasn't reparative therapy um, or conversion therapy by name, but it was for the sake of your faith, you need to manage this and keep it in a box. Um, I was married at the time and had um, had three kids or have three kids. I still have them. Um, <laughs> three kids through that that season, and so there was there was just a lot of competing ideologies that were um, trying to define who I was. Um, I was also diagnosed with PTSD um, to dealing with um, the fallout of uh, sexual abuse and um, some life-threatening traumas. And um, all of these things were just coming together in this perfect storm of it's better to be who everyone else wants me to be than to really tackle who I am. Um, so the whole question of identity um, is one that I ran from for um, the good good majority of my life, and and a lot of that in the name of God, and in, more specifically in the name of the church. Yeah. So so it sounds like for the most part, I mean, your faith, at least in that season, was a huge restricting factor. Like it was kind of the box that kept you from stepping into the fullness of who you are. Yeah. Um, as, as I came out of that, so 2014, I, um, was dealing with some physical issues and I'll talk more about that in a little bit, but, um, had been dealing with chronic pain for about 25 years at that point. And it, it was undiagnosed. We couldn't figure out what was causing it. And I'd been in for some more scans and more doctor's appointments and um, got a diagnosis of psychosomatic. And basically the medical doctors were just chalking everything up to the trauma and the gender identity and saying that the physical pain was just a, um, a manifestation of these other issues that I was dealing with. And so as, um, as I processed that and um, our marriage was falling apart by this point and uh, I ended up in the hospital having abandoned a suicide plan um, makes me part of that 42% of transgender people who um, either uh, plan or attempt suicide. Um, it didn't get as far as an attempt for me, but um, there was definitely a solid, a solid plan in place. And so I ended up in the hospital for a while, ended up in outpatient therapy. Um, and um, working with that therapist, I I came to this point where I was dealing with the identity, dealing with the marriage, dealing with my health. And it wasn't a Christian-based program. 
that I was in at this point, but um, I had been able to just ascertain that the, the therapist was a believer, and we connected somewhat on that level. And I just looked at her when we were one-on-one at some point and uh, said, I don't think my faith is big enough to handle this. And her response was pivotal for me. She just looked at me back and said, I don't, I don't think it's your faith that's not big enough. I think it's your idea of God that's too small. And that turned my thinking on its ear. Um, I talk about growing up in evangelical circles, and we hear a lot about this God-shaped box or, or God-shaped hole in our hearts, and only God can fill this hole. And what? And I still believe that, by the way. I still believe that God has created us to be in relationship with God, and. Um, and so that that god-shaped hole while it's has some cultural connections to it that are challenging um in principle is is still true however in order to fill the god-shaped hole in my heart i had created this god-shaped box in my head Hmm. and so um when i when i talk about my identity as as being a breaker of boxes it's it's it literally taking that box apart one blank at a time. It's like, what is it about God that has limited my perception of who God created me to be? Um, As we investigated more and we discovered that part of the physical pain I was experiencing was the result of being born with both male and female reproductive organs, um, it challenged my concept of gender. And it challenged my concept of what perfect creation was, what it meant to be created in the image of God. Um, you know, was I physically a result of um, of the fall of de-evolution? Um, basically, was I a mutation, um, or was this something that God intentionally, to use the scriptural term, wove into my being? Um, in the womb, um, you know, and is it is it something that he is this part of the experience that he desired for me to bring me closer to him? Um, so these were all things that I had to I had to all of a sudden wrestle with. I had to come to terms with, um, and being like uh, any good Bible college student, um, I had studied at Moody Bible Institute and got a degree in Christian ministry from Dallas Baptist University. So. Um, I did what we all do, and I wrote a paper. There you go. And <laughs> I was <laughs> uh, about 20 pages later, um, and um, I gave the paper to my – at the time, my wife. It wasn't – just not long before we separated. I gave it – I was working part-time for the church, so I gave a copy of the paper to the, to the pastor I was working with and the, the elder that um, – was part of this church plant we were working on and um in the introduction to the paper i said i don't i i doubt that after i'm done with this i'll be able to call myself evangelical um just because i knew that i was stepping away from some very basic tenets of evangelical faith specifically surrounding sexuality and gender um and as as i engaged in that paper um, I wasn't even dealing with my sexual orientation at that point. I was just going back to the basics of what is gender? 
what does it mean to be male? What does it mean to be female? Why have I always struggled with the identity that I, of male as I was given at birth? Why have I always resonated more with a female identity? Um, what does my biology have to do with that? Um, just all of these layers of what we look at as identity that we so often take for granted. Um, I had a therapist once tell me that I had an ego problem, um, which I thought was really, really bizarre because I was like the most insecure person I'd ever met. And um, yeah, I just had all, all sorts of self-image issues and um, I called her out on it. She's like, no, you don't, you don't have an overinflated ego. She says, you don't, you don't have an ego. You have no sense of self. And the sense of self that I had was the, the sense that I had created, um, the shell that I had built um, for everyone else around me. And it's what I refer to as the masks. Um, and as I went through the process of, of letting God out of the box, of embracing these different concepts of self, of embracing these different layers and complexities of identity – um, I was able to start shattering those masks and just start bringing, um, discovering uh, my true self and embracing that journey and just allowing me to become um, whatever it is that, that life was building in me. So, Wow. That's like I've – as we were kind of talking before this episode, like I, I said, like I don't think I've ever really heard your story before and like my goodness, like – what a journey you've been on. It's, it's been intense. Yeah. It has been intense. Yeah. yeah. Um, but beautiful. Mm -hmm. um, just, you know, there's there's been a lot of hurt. Obviously, we, we ended up getting a divorce. Um, that relationship is, is still very strained um, for, for obvious reasons. Um, you know, I've, I've been on a journey with my own parents who have um, – more or less embraced me as their daughter and um i tell a story um not long after i got out of the hospital um i was still married and um i i came basically with a list of things that in order to manage the dysphoria in a more effective way i needed these concessions from my wife at the time um and it wasn't even close to a full transition it was just Allow me to embrace this this piece of me. Allow me to be more true to myself. Um, and I mean, it was basically a blanket no that I got uh, uh, in response to that. Um, but she also said, "And and if you're going, if you're you're truly going to go down this journey, you have to call your parents and tell them." And for some reason, I never hesitated. Um, and you know, I I wasn't that familiar with the lgbtq community specifically the christian lgbtq community at that point so um this whole idea that youth are getting turned out onto the streets by their christian parents by the thousands every year is was foreign to me not even on my radar it never occurred to me that my parents would not accept me um i knew it would change my relationship with them but anyway, we got on the phone. Um, 
I said, you know, there's 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 going to be some changes in life. And they knew I'd been in the hospital and they knew why. And they said, yeah, that's probably a really good thing because um, whatever was happening wasn't working, obviously. So change is good. And dad then stepped in and said, before you go any further, I just want you to know there is nothing you can tell us next that will prevent us from being in relationship with you. And when I talk to parents, when I talk to, to moms and dads um, whose kids are coming out or who think their kids might be coming out or are asking to handle it, um, I go back to that moment because that set the tone for everything else that happened over these past four years. Um, so I shared as best I could about the therapy that I'd been in, about the journey that I'd been on. Um, last 10 years before that, um, they knew some bits and pieces of it. I tried to explain what gender identity disorder was. Um, I tried to explain transgender. Um, it was lost on them. They they understood gay, and they thought that I was coming out as gay um, when I first had the conversation with them or started the conversation, but that wasn't exactly where this was going. And so um, – it, they they just did their best in that initial conversation, and I can only imagine how overwhelming that that might have been for them. But um, we got all said and done, and um, there was a moment of silence. And mom, and bear in mind they they live in East Tennessee in very rural conservative spaces, and um, mom says, "Well, I don't I don't understand most of what you just said." But I am a little relieved because I was kind of afraid you were going to tell us you were a Democrat. <laughs> and I honestly don't remember what I said. I probably uh, well, we'll we'll just that might be another conversation for another time. But <laughs> I probably didn't even know at that point. Yeah, to tell the truth, but. Um, yeah, so it was just there was this this sense of yeah, it's okay. We're we're gonna be okay. Um, I didn't even have at that point the intersex diagnosis, um, and for about the first year that I was doing um, work as an advocate uh, in the church, um, I didn't even really disclose that that diagnosis. Um, and the reason for that was I didn't want people to look at me um, and say, okay, well, it makes sense for you. You know, you have this, you know, in, in some cases, some senses in the transgender community, that intersex diagnosis is a luxury. Because I can look at these churches, I can look at these pastors and say, look, biologically, there's a reason that this is true. There's a, there is a rational tangible thing that I can point to and say this is this is why I identify this way um, you know what I've learned is that more than likely most transgender people if not all have some sort of biological element to their gender identity it may not be diagnosable it may not be something that we can scan in an image or get a blood test on and so um you know, I didn't – I don't want the church as a whole or families in, in general to, um, to look at their transgender 
the transgender people in their lives and say, yeah, but this is just a choice you're making. It makes sense for that person because they have this diagnosis, but you just chose this. Um, nobody would choose this. Nobody would just suddenly decide to buck all of the convention of society and all of the normatives that go with it and the privileges that go with it and um, and go this direction in life. So, Yeah, I feel like, I mean, that point right there, I mean, for... <laughs> For your identity, for probably almost everyone's identity who's listening to the podcast, like, that's a huge point. Like, no one would ever probably choose this right out of the gate for themselves. Um, and I, I think that that's... Uh, for, for me, I, I just look at that point like, yeah, like, <laughs> that's inarguable <laughs> to me. Like, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But. Yeah. You know, there's... And there is a cultural element, and... Um, there was a, an episode of, uh, Sex in the City, which, okay, I just admitted that I watched episodes <laughs> of Sex in the City, but, um, okay, I'll admit, I've watched all of the episodes of Sex yes. in the City, but, <laughs> but there was an episode where, um, one of the main characters was, um, dating a pastry chef who lived in Soho, and he was just rather effeminate. And she was just trying to figure out this relationship, and she finally just said, "Are you are you gay?" And he's like, "No, I'm not gay." I was like, "I'm a pastry chef in Soho. If I wanted to be gay, I'd be gay." Um, there is a growing culture where it's more and more accepted. It's more and more normalized. Um, that culture is not found in any of the faith-based communities that that I walk in, uh, you know, even the affirming communities, it's far from normalized. It's something that we have to label as affirming. Um, you know, we don't, we don't talk about being affirming of accountants or lawyers or, um, you know, we don't talk about being affirming of cancer patients or, <laughs> um, whatever other things life throws at us. But we have to talk about deliberately affirming the lgbtq people in the church um, and that's that's a, a culture shift that's going to be be long and slow and changing um, yeah absolutely like it's a it's no matter kind of where we are in these spaces it's it's still a pushing against the, the normative flow of wherever we are um and that can be really difficult at times because it does take such an intentional effort to just live out who we are. Um, it's that can make for good and bad days. But, yes, it can. Yeah, yeah. One one ways I describe that there's there is immense power in authenticity. Um, and I think early on in this journey, as I started developing a true ego as I started shadowing the masks um, learning the difference between living authentically and still having filters um, uh. you know it's it's not if if I need to put a smile on my face and go to work for the day that's not being unauthentic um, that's just having a filter to function through the day um, if someone comes to me and 
you know, says, are you a believer in Jesus Christ? And they're, you know, um, obviously of, of a Muslim background or something, and I deny it because I don't want to offend them. That's not being authentic. If someone comes to me and asks if I am transgender um, and I deny it, that's not living authentically. Um, so the, learning the differences between being authentic and, and having those filters w was important. But being authentic um, in the context of the church is costly. Um, you know, we kind of joke that, you know, if you want to, if a pastor wants to be authentic, um, he does two things. He steps out from behind the pulpit um, and sits on a stool. <laughs> um, sometimes he'll take off his glasses just to, you know, remove that barrier and <laughs> just really connect with the congregation, you know. <laughs> and then he'll talk about that two seconds of lust that he have as he drove past a Victoria's Secret billboard on the way to church, but then how God brought this beautiful picture of his lovely wife to mind, and he was able to bring the, that lust under control and, you know, have that moment of authentic confession. Um, and that's what passes for authenticity a lot of times in the church. And um, we, in in the LGBTQ community, I think the Christian LGBT community in particular, have had to find new depths of authenticity in order to live with ourselves, let alone with each other in the church. Yeah, I think I I think that's so true. Like and and that's so interesting that, that kind of that contrast that you're making between authenticity and still having filters, because I think so often I think when, when we're maybe like newly coming out or newly stepping into living authentically, that boundary can be so fuzzy of like, how much do I share about our, myself? How do I over, like, I know when I first came out, I was like, just, just spewing out. I wasn't contained for good reason. I, I wrote a book. So. <laughs> I don't know what that says about my boundaries. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Yeah, but it's like it's it's that and and of course we are. Of course we are just wanting to kind of burst out into the world and and live into that freedom that we finally found. But there is something about this idea of filters and and reading environments and and having to um start being wise around authenticity. It, well, and and there is you know, to me I, I tell people frequently that I have a very, very specific transgender gay agenda, um, and it is to love the Lord my God with all my heart, mind, and soul, and love my neighbor as myself. Um, and when I bring my authenticity under the banner of those principles, um, my authenticity is driven around feeding healthy relationship, healthy relationship with God, um, personally, on a meditative level, on a spiritual level, um, healthy relationship with family, with friends, with coworkers, it, that all just, you know, expands out from my very tight inner circle to, you know, the cashier that I, you know, just, I'm going to have a passing moment with. 
Um, and so it, when I put authenticity in the context of relationship, it's no longer just about me. It's about the other person as well. And so me coming out and spewing my gender identity, my um, struggles with depression and anxiety um, and suicidal ideation and just all of a sudden throwing all of that on the table might not be in the best interest of this other person. You know, there might be things that um, that's doing more harm than good at the moment. So the filters come into play sheerly out of respect for the environment that I'm in and the context that I'm in. And I think we need to be, as a community, um, we need to be incredibly sensitive to the impact we have, both positive and negative, on the people around us. That gets really challenging when we start talking about going into unaffirming spaces. Um, how much how much do responsibility do I take for the sensitivities of an oppressor? Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it's like I I hear what you're saying, and and uh, on one hand I'm like completely agreeing. On the other hand, like I, I, the weight of that of like of having to take on that responsibility and and almost the pressure of uh, it, it feels. I mean, in a way, there's there's a sense in those words of of feeling like you almost have to go back into the closet. But I don't think that's what you're saying. Um, I'm not. Um, no, but uh, no, no, but um, no. We don't have to go back into the closet, and also we don't have to carry the closet door everywhere we go. Um, one of my mottos for this year has been allowing the becoming and just exploring what you know what that means as far as personal growth and personal exploration and um the uh, and part of what that is is existing in the moment um so that not every single moment is an out of the closet moment it doesn't mean it's an in the closet moment um you know, and I, I even use the, the word box instead of closet a lot. I, I don't always have to be thinking out of the box or in the box. Sometimes there's just not a box. Sometimes we just are. And so um, it's not – while it, it may feel for a moment like we might have to step into the closet to be sensitive to our environment, um, you know, if – Thinking about it this way, not not everyone in the room is addressing their issues of their sexuality. Not everyone in the room is addressing issues of gender. Um, now, we find a lot that gender kind of comes up because all of a sudden in social environments, men and women will split and go two different directions. <laughs> and, um, you know, which way do these people expect me to go? Um, the uh, – but um, – yeah, being sensitive to being sensitive to where other people are, um, and I'm phrasing this. I'm, I'm working on phrasing this a little bit be, be, because of what you were saying about that feeling of being back in the closet. Um, the way that I present myself um, 
in the context of the church, in the context of a faith-based community, um, will shape the perception of that closet. So if I allow the people around me to have that journey, if, um, if I allow them, you know, when we're talking about parents and John Pavlitz coined this phrase, the second closet, um, when we come out of our closet as LGBT people, LGBTQ people, the, our parents and family and, um, you know, sometimes close circles, they go into their closet. And then, you, you know, they're not going to tell their extended family. They're not going to tell their coworkers. <clears throat> um, they're not going to tell their, their churches until they're ready to come out of that second closet. And so... Um, allowing them the space for that journey is is just as important as it was for us to have the, the space for our journey. Um, and and the church is no no different to allow them the room to come out of their second closet and embrace us with that is and that can sometimes be painful and it, sometimes it might mean that we disengage for a while. Um, one of the reasons that I started getting more into advocacy work was because I found that I had a knack for being in those spaces and for being on that journey with people. Um, I found that I would go and I do a lot of work at coffee shops just one-on-one -on -one across the table. And I would go and just sit and these pastors would – we'd have a – you know, just a, a – casual introduction of a conversation and then all of a sudden they would start asking questions but then answering the questions for themselves and they were just and it wasn't that I was I didn't have to go ask any questions I didn't have to answer any questions I was the question and when I allowed myself to just be the question and let them have their own little dialogue here the conversation and the relationship made so much more progress than when I stepped in to try and debate or convince or argue, and you know I just let them wrestle with it in front of me, and and sometimes would step in and if they were you know looking for a word or looking for some language or if they said something that could be offensive I would out of respect for them not I mean I educate them along the way but. Um, and there were times that they would get to a point that was like, no, I, I just, I just can't. I'm not there yet, or I don't want to be there, or I'm not going to ever be where you want me to be. And and that was okay. We had to accept that and part ways amiably in that sense. But um, yeah, allowing people to have that journey, just to be the question with them. Uh, I feel like I'm taking a lot of rabbit trails on you. Sorry. No, this is, no, no, this is great. Like in, 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 in thinking about that, like as you were talking, I was thinking about like uh, my therapist always talks about, we're, we're always focusing in on no matter where you are in an environment, how do you stay grounded in yourself? And it, it sounds to me like that's, that's kind of what you're saying. Like, no matter how we're necessarily presenting or or what filters we're putting in place, there's still a rootedness and groundedness in authentically living as yourself that probably wasn't there before we came out of the closet. Um, yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, something interesting that I've I've observed um, 
you know, we talk about um, whether you want to see it as a plurality or a duality, but this sense of body and spirit or body, soul and spirit. Um, and um, one of the things that pushed me toward finally coming out was um, really looking at, I don't know if you're familiar with, uh, I'm sure you are studying psychology, but Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Um, you know, your basic physical needs, your safety needs, then your need for belonging and connection, and then, you know, more of a conscious level, um, spiritual uh, awakening that happens at the top of that pyramid. And what I've found with, um, and I've been specifically discussing this within the transgender community, but I think it applies to the LGBTQ community as a whole, or I might even go as far to say any marginalized group that has had a closeted experience of some sort or a stigmatized experience of some sort. Um, I think from a, a from that that body person of us, we we follow that hierarchy of needs from the bottom up, like most people do. Um, the closeted person, that closeted part of our personality, whether you want to call that spirit or soul or essence, however you want to describe it, works through that hierarchy of needs from the top down. We come to a sense of self-awareness um, that is not grounded in our physical presentation. It's not grounded in what other people see in us. It's not grounded in our sense of belonging, but it's internalized. And so what we have to do is we have to take that internalized sense of self, move it into that sense of belonging, let that become part of our safety network, and let that become part of how our physical needs are being met. So it's literally working through that hierarchy of needs backwards as we come and embrace that authenticity. And then and then it turns into a place, a, a, I mean, to use that word grounded again, a ground from which we can then stand. Yes, yeah. Um, a question I've been asking people lately has has your body ever danced with your soul to the music of your spirit? Mm. Um, and it's just this, this picture of wholeness where um, all of the plurality of who we are is in harmony. And, you know, that's what, to me, living authentically has allowed. It's allowed my, um, it's allowed me to work both from the top down and the bottom up of the those hierarchy of needs and to blend those two pieces into a more solid as you say more grounded uh, sense of who i am and sense and from that grounded space be able to relate to the world around me um from a different place uh that uh i i'm sitting here like with chills because i think that is such a beautiful picture of like I feel like the way and the life that Christ calls us into is that kind of dance between body soul spirit self like that it it just feels so much more life-giving um and and I feel like that's that's it right there (laughs) it is I mean for me life-giving is a great word Mm. um life-saving maybe even Mm -hmm. Mm. 
So I'm curious, maybe to close. Um, sure. You you had said kind of at the beginning, like that that uh, when you were talking about being in therapy and with your therapist, um, and, and she had said maybe it's your idea of God that's too small. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm curious in then this this journey that you've been on. Would you say that your idea of God has grown, uh, and what maybe has that kind of looked like? Um, well, the short answer is yes. <laughs> um, the uh, grown immensely, um, and I think, um, yeah, I think you know, creating the so the emphasis of religion is to create God or a sense of God that is manageable, that's explainable, um, especially in a post-scientific age of religion, um, we have an immense addiction to answers. Um, we love to know. We love to explain. And um, part of this new concept of I've had of God these past four years is just embracing the mystery of God, of being willing to, to live with the questions. And um, let the answers come as as they do or not. You know, to, to find peace in the fact that answers may not be part of the equation for us on certain issues, on certain things. Um, I'm working on a blog post um, that will be up shortly. And um, I'm pulling it up because I haven't even said it enough to quote it to myself but um, um, here it is when we bring peace let's see here um, when when we seek answers as a means of wholeness we become slaves to answers and to knowledge when we have to know in order to maintain our sense of peace or in order to maintain our concept of God our peace is as fragile as the next tidbit of information that might come along and disrupt what we thought we knew. When we bring peace and wholeness with us to the question, we bring the endurance we need to wait for the answers. When we wait for the answers with patient endurance, we find the great destinations that were intended, not the mediocre destinations we've contrived. We've contrived. So in essence, my concept of God has has changed to where I don't have to define it. It doesn't have to be in a box. It doesn't have to be contained. It doesn't have to be always explainable. Um, and that doesn't fly in contrast to our, um, you know, the, the directive we have in Scripture to, to give an answer for our faith. Um, I can tell you exactly why <laughs> I, um, I don't have to explain the entire essence of who God is. I can give you an answer for that. Um, so uh, does, that, does that answer your question about does. where it is? Yeah. 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 And I think, I mean, uh, that again sounds like you, uh, a more rooted, <laughs> grounded um, way of practicing faith. It's it, it's embodied and it's it's that you said that, that bringing peace with us wherever we go Um what I'm finding is it's sustainable. Yeah. Yeah. If I always have to have an answer, 
if I always have to know, then at the moment that I don't know, I'm in a faith crisis. If my faith is based on a God that is, and me engaging with that God as life and spirit and God chooses to reveal it, then I'm able to live in a moment. I'm able to live in the here and now uh, without having to anxiously seek and find and worry about what what is coming. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like there's a lot of a lot more breathing room there. That's a good space. That's a good way to put it. Yes. Uh, Laura Beth, thank you. So thank you. Much. Yeah. This has been fun. Yeah. It's so good. So so good. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, how can people find your work? Um I it can be found at laurabethtaylor.com. Um I'm on Facebook too as Laura Beth Taylor. Um, it's my public page out there, and um, uh, my book is on Amazon.com. It's Shattering Masks. Um, there's a an ebook and paperback copy of it, that available. Yeah, great, wonderful. Well, I'll put links to all of that in the show notes. And um, excellent. Yeah. Well, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. I appreciate your work and what you do for. Our- community for giving us all a voice again you can find laura beth's work over at her website laurabethtaylor.com she's also on facebook at laura beth taylor make sure to go pick up a copy of her book shattering masks on amazon Corology is on twitter and instagram at Corology pod or you can tweet me directly at matthias roberts if you feel like Corology is worth a dollar a month, head over to MatthiasRoberts.com support to make a pledge. Every little bit helps, seriously. Another really easy way to support Corology is by leaving a review. You can do that right in your podcast app or head over to MatthiasRoberts.com review and it'll take you right there. As always, I'd love to hear from you. If you have ideas of who you'd like to see on the podcast or if you just want to say hi, reach out. I'll get back to you. And until next week, y'all, bye. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.